0: Well, as many of you know, I have not really um, addressed our current circumstances, this pandemic, um, in a sermon yet. I've intentionally done this because I wanted time to think and pray, to think and pray before I decided to really speak on this issue. I don't take what I'm about to say lightly, but I believe it's what God's word would have me declare at this time I've decided to preach at least one sermon on this topic with the possibility of doing another one after Easter Easter Sunday but I'm not totally sure just yet now I've, I've provided in your bulletin an outline and and within your bulletin I've given you several verses as we're going to be jumping around I'm not going to be reading all the verses that are in your bulletin but if you want to take those verses on your own time and, and look them up just to see the scope of what i'm about to say this morning so let me pray before we get into god's word heavenly father by your spirit speak to our minds and hearts this morning help us to behold christ in all of his glory and power we pray this in christ's name amen There was a a recent theologian, I won't tell his name, who wrote an article about what Christianity has to say about COVID-19. Now, to be fair, he he spoke about the importance of lament during this time, and, and I heartily agree with him on that. This is a time to lament as Christians for several reasons. Our inability to gather as a church, is a reason to lament the loss of life that we are seeing across the world and even in our own nation. And we know that unless the Lord intervenes miraculously, it will probably be far worse in the coming weeks. The impact that this is having on our economy, people losing their jobs, businesses closing down. See, there's a place for us to cry out to God. Why, God, have you Allow this? When will you intervene and put an end to this? The Bible is full of such questions, even by some of God's own prophets. And because God is a good and kind Father, He's willing to hear the cries of His children because He knows our finiteness and our limitations. He knows we don't grasp or understand the full picture. His ways are not our ways. You see, God being infinite and us being finite limits our ability to understand why. But he understands, and he allows for us to cry out to him. So yes, we need to lament, as this author argued. But this author also argued something else. He goes on to say in the article, it is no part of the Christian vocation to be able to explain what's happening and why. In fact, it is a part of the Christian vocation not to be able to explain and to lament instead. He argues that, that any Christian that attempts to explain in some degree why COVID-19 has occurred has embraced rationalism and this, this need to always explain. Well, I was shocked when I read this by this prominent theologian. If God and his word doesn't have anything to offer in helping us to think rightly and how to respond rightly about this specific situation or any catastrophe that we experience, for example, 9-11, or, or the tsunami in Indonesia that killed over 100,000 people, then why would we even be Christians? If Christianity has nothing to offer us in the midst of catastrophe, no explanation, no helpful understanding, that it's out of touch with our human reality, our human experience. You see, I think there are two wrong responses to a situation like ours. The first would be what this specific author argued, that Christianity gives us no kind of explanation to this catastrophe. The other error would be to argue that that we can know specifically or particularly God's purposes for COVID-19. I think an example of this is when when 9-11 happened, there was a famous preacher in America who, who got up on Sunday and, and declared that, that 9-11 was God's judgment on America because of America embracing homosexuality. We can't make such specific claims like that. We don't have that kind of knowledge as Christians. We do not know the infinite mind of God and the reasons for why he might allow something. So what is the proper response? Well, I think the proper response is that Christianity does give us answers, but not, as Owen Strachan says, specific or particular answers, but more general answers. God gives us general answers to the deep questions of life. He doesn't necessarily give us specific answers to many of our experiences, but he does give us general answers. For example, someone loses a child, a Christian loses a child, and I can't tell you specifically why God would allow such a thing, but I can tell you generally that God works for the good of those who love him. That somehow this tragedy works for the good of his children. I I might not know what that good is in that situation at that particular time, but sometimes God does reveal after the event has passed. As John Flavel says, sometimes providences, like Hebrew letters, must be read backwards. But sometimes we will never know the specific reason until we are face to face with Jesus. But what I do know is that God's promise is true because God is true. And though he might not give us a specific answer, he does give us general answers. And so my goal and aim this morning is to help us as Christians to think through COVID-19 from a biblical lens, So that we would respond the way God would intend us to respond as his representatives on earth. So how are we to think as Christians about COVID-19 and how are we to respond in light of this pandemic? Well first, what we need to know is that God is sovereign and in control of COVID-19. For a matter of fact, he is sovereign and in control of all things. Isaiah 46, 8 to 11. This chapter in Isaiah 46, God is confronting Israel over their idolatry, and he's, he's contrasting himself to these, these idols, these Babylonian idols that they are worshiping. You bow down to this gold and, and, and this wood that you've made yourself. These gods don't speak, they can't feed themselves, they can't do anything. And he's contrasting them to himself, the one true God. And this is what he says. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. See, what God is speaking to here is the uniqueness of who he is. That's what he's trying to get across to Israel. There is no God like me. There is none like me in all the universe. I am the one true and living God. Israel lost sight of that and so God is is going to show them what makes him unique as God. And so in verses 10 verse 10 he describes what makes him unique, in a sense his godness. And this is what he says declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done. I am God and there is none like me. Why? I AM THE GOD WHO DECLARES THE END FROM THE BEGINNING, AND FROM ANCIENT TIMES THINGS NOT YET DONE. GOD DECLARES, HE KNOWS, THE END FROM THE BEGINNING. But we need to see that God's not a fortune-teller. His declaring the end from the beginning isn't simply due to the fact that He knows the future. The reason God is able to declare the end from the beginning is because the end from the beginning is a result of his counsel and his purpose. As he says next in verse 10, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose, which means all of human history is the unfolding of God's counsel and purpose. As he then says in verse 11, calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my council from a far country, I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. This is what makes God, God. God wasn't surprised by COVID-19 like all the countries of the world have been. God knew of COVID-19 and actually declared and purposed it for his purposes. There's nothing outside of God's sovereign rule and reign. He is in control of all things. There's a theology today which is called open theism, and it claims that, that God isn't sovereign over the future. In fact, God doesn't even know the future. He's surprised by these tragic events in the same way we are. He grieves these events like we do. Now, I'm I'm very careful to use the word heresy. I rarely use it. But with this idea, I have no hesitation. There is no way to reconcile such an idea with the God of the Bible. The God of the scriptures knows the end from the beginning. He has declared the end from the beginning. All of human history is the unfolding of God's counsel and purposes. You remember in the book of Job, there's this dialogue between Job and his his friends, and of course they're bad theologians and Job is making his complaint to God, he has his questions before God, and and God finally responds to Job in chapters 38 through to 41, four chapters, and basically his response to Job's questions are merely questions back about who God is. He says, Job, were you there when I laid the foundations of the world? Were you there when I placed the stars in the sky and, and continued to uphold them? Were you there, Job, when I when I made humanity and I made all the animals of creation? Were you there, Job? Were you? Job, are you the one who, who feeds the eagle? Are you the one who cares for the bear and his cubs? Are you the one who, who feeds the deep sea creatures? Job, do you know the deepest creatures and the deepest parts of the sea? Job, are you the one who, who orchestrates the, the rain and the lightning and thunder and, and, and the sun rising in the morning and, and, and going down in the evening? Are you the one, Job, who does those things? Well, after Job hears God speak for three or four chapters, Job responds in repentance in chapter 42, verse 2, and this is what he says. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. And then he says this. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. God's ways are too wonderful for us to know and to understand. Friends, the sovereignty of God would be terrifying if God were not good. But because the God of the Bible is good, his sovereignty can be trusted, worshipped, And his sovereignty and and providence can bring deep comfort to our souls in the midst of crisis and suffering. That's, That's precisely what Jesus thought when he used the sovereignty of God to comfort his disciples in Matthew chapter 10, verse 28 to 32. Where he says this to them, And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And then he says this, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. You see, Jesus is using the sovereignty of God to comfort his disciples. If a sparrow cannot fall to the ground apart from your father's will, then why fear what man can do to you? For you are far more loved than a sparrow. In other words, God's meticulous sovereignty over all things, even a sparrow falling to the ground, is meant to bring security, comfort to his children, knowing that nothing can happen to them unless God sovereign, sovereignly and providentially allows it, which is precisely what we see with the life of Job. Satan cannot do simply what he wants to do to Job. He must get God's permission. And even when God gives him permission in Job chapter 1 and 2, there are limitations placed upon Satan. You see, strangely, the, the sovereignty of God has been a controversial doctrine for many Christians. But it's not because it's not clear. It's because I think our sinful hearts are naturally inclined, are not naturally inclined to it. Even in Habakkuk, the prophet struggles with God's sovereign rule. In Habakkuk 1, Habakkuk complains to God for, for not judging the wicked within Israel. They're, the wicked within Israel are oppressing their own people. And, and Habakkuk cries out to God, asking God to, to judge the wicked in Israel. And then when God responds and tells Habakkuk he's going to judge Israel by raising up the Chaldeans against them, Habakkuk doesn't like God's plan, because the Chaldeans are more evil than Israel. Why, God, would you raise up a more evil people to judge Israel? He struggles to accept God's mysterious ways. But God also promises Habakkuk that he will also judge the Chaldeans for their wickedness as well. You see, Habakkuk at first finds discomfort with God's plan. He doesn't grasp it. Yet by the end of it all, he's able to declare in chapter 318, Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. He doesn't understand God's ways, but he knows God to be God. He knows Him to be the God of salvation, and therefore he trusts Him despite not fully understanding. See, why do people struggle with this doctrine of God's sovereignty? Well, as I already mentioned, one, our, our natural inclination is, is desiring control for ourselves, Adam and Eve wanted autonomy from God. We want want to believe we control our own lives. We want to be our own master. We want to sit on the throne of our lives and dictate what should be and what shouldn't be. But I also think there's another reason why we have a hard time understanding God's sovereignty, and it's because we have a wrong understanding of God. You see, if I were to say... God is the greatest being in our universe, I think most Christians would say that's a true statement. But it's only partly true. God is the greatest being, but he is not the greatest being in our universe. You see, I think many of us have this idea that, that God is, is one being in our universe, and he, and he is superior to all other beings. And then there's all these other beings, spiritual and, and physical, created material, right? And, and, and we tend to think that God is this one being in the universe, and, and all these other beings are in the universe. But that's not the picture that the Bible gives, The Bible tells us that God is actually transcendent over the universe. And the universe and all that is created, both material and spiritual, find their existence in God. They participate in God. They don't exist apart from God. See, all the universe, both material and spiritual, are contingent upon God for its existence. This is why Paul, when when speaking to the Greek philosophers in Acts 17, verse 24 to 25, he says, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And then as he goes further along in his speech in verse 28, he says to them, In Him, that is, in God, we live and move and have our being. You see, the universe, both material and spiritual, are dependent upon God for its existence, but also its sustained existence. Hebrews 1.3, the writer of Hebrews says this, He, that is Christ, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. God is not the the watchmaker who sets the universe into motion. No, no, God is continuing to sustain the universe, and here, as we're told, by the word of his power. Christ is doing that by the word of his power. See, I think many people tend to think that God is this being in the universe, and and he is the greatest being, and then there's, for example, Satan, who, who isn't as great as God, but he's also powerful, and they're at war with each other, but that's not the picture that the Bible gives. You see, the picture that the Bible gives is that God is transcendent over the universe and that even Satan is contingent upon God for life and existence. God upholds and sustains the very being of Satan. This is precisely what Paul articulates in Colossians 1, 16-17, where he says, For by him, that is Christ, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and and invisible whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities all things were created through him and for him and we know we know from this passage that the thrones dominions rulers and authorities are the demonic powers as paul says in ephesians 6 we do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against the principalities the rulers and authorities the 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 dark forces of this world So, all things were created through him and for him. So, everything in creation, both visible and invisible, are for Jesus Christ. And then, verse 17, and he is before all things, and in him, all things hold together. You see that Christ is not in the universe. The universe and everything, and also the demonic powers, are in him. They hold together in him. As Craig Carter states, God is not a part of the spiritual realm, as opposed to being a part of the material realm. Instead, God is utterly transcendent over both the spiritual and the material, and directly present to both. None of us, none of us are self-sustaining creatures. We're all utterly dependent upon God for life at every moment of every day. You see, if we understand God rightly in relation to the creation, then the sovereignty of God isn't a hard thing to embrace. We exist because of Him. We're sustained because of Him. We live and move and have our being in Him. He's the author and sustainer of our lives. He's the author and sustainer of history. He guides history to its appointed end, which is the exaltation of Christ and the redemption of his people in a new creation. As Terry Johnson says, whatever happens, though it happens through the activity of second causes through means, happens ultimately by the hand of God. The fingerprint of God can be found in everything. See, I think the best way to understand this is that God is on a, on a higher plane than us. He's the author, and we're the characters in his story. It's his story that he's unfolding, and we're participants because he's made us characters in the story. But he has the freedom to write the story. And the beautiful thing about god's story is that the author decides does decide to enter into the story when christ becomes a babe on christmas morning and lives among us you see the sovereignty of god is one of the sweetest most comforting truths in the bible to my soul When I look at our world and I see the chaos of our world from from our human perspective, the only thing that brings me comfort is knowing that all of that chaos is in some mysterious way under the control of God's sovereign reign and his sovereign purposes. The same is true of COVID-19. I think the clearest example of God's sovereignty over all things is the death of Jesus Christ himself. This was the most evil act in human history, the murder of the Son of God by the hands of the Jews and the Romans. Yet it was also the most loving act in all of human history. It was God's token of love to the world. They crucified him. Yet we know that Jesus was crucified before the foundation of the world. We know that the death of Christ was the sovereign plan of God to save a people from their sins. This is precisely what Acts 4, 27 to 28 states. The the church in Acts 4 is praying. The disciples have been flogged. They've been commanded to not preach Christ. And so they are praying to God for courage. And this is what they pray for truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Friends, God is sovereign over all things, He is sovereign over COVID. Nineteen. Secondly, God in his infinite wisdom has a purpose or purposes for COVID-19, which of course is tied to his sovereignty. In Ephesians 1.11, Paul writes, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. What does all things mean? All things means all things. God works all things. Every moment, every person, every event, every catastrophe, every good. He works all things according to the counsel of his will. And his will, friends, is infinitely wise. God has a purpose or purposes for all things, including COVID-19. There's not a single thing in this universe that is meaningless. So what might be some of God's God's purposes in this pandemic? Well, there could be 10,000 reasons. But I think for sure, at least what I know to be true, are, are at least three reasons. The first, I would say, is I think God in his Sovereignty and providence is seeking to refine and purify his church. I've already felt like God has been teaching me things since this pandemic has occurred. I believe that God, by his grace and in his providence, he is causing us as a church to value gathering together in a way that we never did before. I think we're, we're realizing our need for one another. We have so valued individualism and autonomy. And I think that, that us being isolated in our homes, God is teaching us that we truly do need one another. We need to put down our phones, put down our technology, and actually invest in each other. I think God is reminding us of the centrality of the church in our lives. Not only that, I I believe that God is is testing us in order order to build faith in us. As James 1, 2-4 says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. See, I believe that God is using COVID-19 to deepen our love and our commitment to one another and also to deepen our faith and to grow us into maturity and godliness. We also know, as as I've already mentioned, that according to Romans 8.28, God works all things for the good of those who love him. As Paul states, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. I can't tell you fully how this crisis is working for our good, but I I do believe it with my whole heart. So I think God is seeking to refine and purify his church. Secondly, and this might seem controversial, but I don't think it is, I believe that this is one manifestation of God's judgment upon the nations. Is it possible that God is reminding us of just how finite we truly are, just as he did with the tower of Babel? Maybe God is is humbling the nations, revealing just how little control we actually have as humans. I think it's ironic that, that over the last several years, governments have been investing so much time in telling people that, that we need to give taxes more taxes in order for us to, to defeat climate change and, and be able to control nature. And yet, one little virus shows up and, and literally nations have had to shut down because of it. God, I believe, is humbling us and reminding us our place in the created order. You see, God's word would tell us that the mercies and judgments of God are manifested in our world every day. And both the mercies and judgments of God are meant to lead us to repentance Every morning when the sun rises, we are experiencing the mercy and kindness of God. And every day when there is disease, death, catastrophes, we are reminded that the world is under God's judgment. The world is full of the judgments and mercies of God always. God's judgments and mercies are manifested in a multitude of ways. For example in in Romans 1 God's judgment is manifested by by handing people over to their own sinful desires. In Genesis 3 when when Adam and Eve rebelled against God, God God declared judgments or curses upon each individual upon Adam and upon Eve and also upon the serpent. And this is what he said to Adam in Genesis 3:17 to 18. No longer would the creation be at harmony with humanity, but we would have conflict with creation. There would be pain because of creation. Every disease, sickness, natural disaster is a reminder of God's curse upon creation. Just as all forms of of sickness are a result of the curse that God placed on creation, so COVID-19 is a result of the curse. It's a reminder to us that our world is under sin and in need of redemption. But God promises one day that he's going to lift the curse and liberate the creation from its corruption and decay. You see, friend, there is a far superior virus than COVID-19 in our world. COVID-19 merely points to this greater virus. There is a virus in the bloodstream of every human being. And that virus is the virus of sin. And no vaccine nor social distancing can cure you of this virus. This virus is global and catastrophic. It kills and destroys the soul of every human. But there is a cure. There is only one cure for this virus, and it's the blood of Jesus that washes away our sin. But we must come to him in repentance and faith and acknowledge that we have sinned against him. Now, when I say that COVID 19 is a manifestation of God's curse upon creation and therefore a judgment, I do not mean that if you get COVID 19, you're somehow a worse sinner than the person who doesn't get it. That's not what I'm saying. Do you remember Jesus' words in Luke 13 1 to 5? He says this There were some present at that very time Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them? Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. You see, when catastrophes hit, like the ones Jesus just mentioned, it's never a time to point the finger. And to say, they were horrible sinners. That's why that happened to them. Like when 9-11 happened, that was not the time to say, this is the judgment of God because of homosexuals or because of of thieves or murderers. That is not the proper response as Christians. Jesus is telling us that when those kinds of things happen, those catastrophes, it's actually a time for self-introspection. It's a time to examine our own lives and to repent of our own sins and to turn to Christ for the forgiveness of sins. So friends, I believe that COVID-19 is a form, a manifestation of God's curse upon creation. But I also believe that this virus, though an act of God's judgment, can also be seen as an act of God's mercy. Often in the prophets, God would bring judgment upon Israel, but it was, in some ways, an act of mercy because it was through the judgment that God would wake Israel up to their sin and cause them to turn in repentance and faith. Remember this. In God's judgments upon the earth, there is always mercy. Think about this. This virus could be way worse than what it is. That's God's mercy. Friends, God has purposes for this virus, and though we may not know all the reasons, we can trust him because he is infinitely wise and good in what he purposes and allows as many of you know, I, I just became a father recently, and um, I have learned so much um, in, just in this last month of what it means to be a dad, but also what it means to be God in one sense. I have understand a little bit more of God because of becoming a father. I have noticed that, for example, when I go to change Inez, she freaks out. She loses it. She begins to scream because she doesn't like her diaper being changed, especially when my hands are cold. She thinks that I'm causing her pain. She has no understanding of the situation. Her mind is so limited. All she knows is that she is experiencing something she doesn't like. But I know that this is necessary in order to actually care for her to seek her good. If I don't change her diaper, she's going to be in more pain in the long run. You see, my mind as her father is so superior to her mind as an infant. She thinks I am trying to harm her when everything that I am doing is from a place of love toward her. And friends, If we compare ourselves to God, our minds are like the mind of an infant in comparison to the God who knows all and is infinitely wise. So are we willing to humble ourselves and to trust that this infinite wise God has purposes in our pain? You see, we might not get the explanation in this life, but we can trust him for our lives. Now someone might object and say, that's a cop-out. You should be able to explain what God is doing in all of these different kinds of events. But it's not a cop-out. It's acknowledging our limitations as finite creatures. If you think God and his ways are explainable perfectly, then you don't know the God of the Bible. The Apostle Paul, who sought to explain in detail God's ways, who who reasoned and, and made his logical arguments about God, even he knows there's limitations to what we can know about God. In Romans 9 to 11, where Paul writes in detail about God's election and how he shows mercy to whom he wills and how he hardens whom he wills. And then in chapter 11, he, he talks about Israel's hardening and how God actually consigned them to disobedience in order that he might show them mercy, mercy. And after all this intense reflection on God's ways, his argumentation, his, his logic in salvation and election and hardening, Paul can't help but break out into praise for the infinite wisdom of God and his ways and how they are, are unsearchable. As he says in Romans 11, 33 to 36, oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable, hear that? How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable, inexplicable his ways. We cannot fathom them. He is infinite. He is beyond us. For who, as he says, has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Can we counsel God? Do we know the mind, the infinite mind of God? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? There is nothing that we give to God that he did not give to us. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. You see, if you expect to understand everything about God and his ways, then it won't be the God of Christianity, but a God reduced to your finite mind. Now, I want to take this time really quickly to address the kids. Kids, I want you to listen up. The last two Sundays, I I intended to address you and I completely forgot. And so I want to address you this morning. Now, I have no doubt that, that there are things your parents do that you don't fully understand, that you don't like. They might discipline you, and it hurts and it, it causes you harm, emotional, physical possibly, but you don't like that. But I want you to understand that, that you don't fully grasp why your parents are doing what they're doing because your parents have a superior mind than you. You haven't lived like they have lived. You you don't understand the world like they understand the world. One day when you are older, you are going to look back and go, now I get it. Now I understand why my parents did what they did. Now here's the thing, though. Sometimes your parents can be wrong. Sometimes they can be wrong in disciplining you and correcting you and, and doing things that you might not like. Most of the time, they probably are right if they are seeking to follow God's ways, but but sometimes they can be wrong. But know this, there is never a time where God does something wrong in your life. He can be fully trusted with whatever happens in your life. So we've seen God as sovereign over all things, including COVID-19. We've seen God in his infinite wisdom has purposes for COVID 19. And my final point: COVID 19 cannot separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Turn to, to Romans 8. In Romans 8, as you know, in verse 28, we is the glorious prom, promise. And then in verses 29 to 30, Paul lists what theologians call the, the chain of salvation. This unbreakable chain that that guarantees that Romans 8.28 is is a trustworthy promise. As he says in Romans 8.28, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. That's the unbreakable chain of salvation. And in light of this unbreakable chain of salvation and this glorious promise, Paul then states in verses 31 to 34, What then shall we say to these things, to these truths, If God is for us, who can be against us? He, that is God, who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God. Who indeed is interceding for us. And now we come to the main point. Verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? That's the key question. That's what I want to answer. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And then, and then he lists all these possible things. Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? Shall any of these be able to separate us from the love of Christ? Verse 36, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. So so do any of these things have the power to separate us from the love of Christ? What's Paul's answer? Verse 37. No, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. See that? No, in all these things, We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Now, I want us to see something here. There are Christians, right now I've seen this, on the internet, who, because of their, just frankly, bad theology, they think that they cannot get COVID-19 because they are Christians. They think that, that if they have enough faith, they can disregard governmental authorities, not listen to the rules, and and not and and in the end not get covid-19 but that's not what paul argues here paul doesn't argue that because we're christians we somehow escape the sufferings and tribulations of this world that's not what he says he says in all these things that is in tribulation in distress in persecution in famine, in nakedness, in danger, in in regards to the sword, we are more than conquerors. That is, we can, as Christians, experience all the same things that the world does, but in those things, we are more than conquerors. Now, here's the question. How do we conquer if we can experience those things? Well, verse 38 and 39 are the answer. Four, that's key, verse 38. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So, so here's Paul's logic. Here's how we are more than conquerors in all these things. You take the sword to my neck and you kill me, yet in your killing me, I have conquered the sword. Why? Because the sword doesn't have the power to separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus. He purchased my salvation and my salvation is unbreakable. COVID 19 has no power, church, to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Now, why am I telling you this? Well, no one really knows how the coming days are going to unfold other than God. Doctors have made their projections. Things could get better or things could get worse. And I'm not here to cause fear. But as your pastor, I feel a responsibility to prepare us for the worse. I'm hoping for the best, but I want us to be prepared for the worst. I'm praying that no harm would come to any of us. But if God in his wisdom and providence would allow us to taste, maybe some of us, the bitter pill of this virus, economically, and even death, I want to do all I can to help my fellow saints be prepared and ready. We must come to grips with our mortality, while knowing that we are forever in the love of God. Poverty and death cannot separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. So in light of God being sovereign over all things, in light of God and his infinite wisdom having a purpose or purposes for COVID-19 that will ultimately be for our good, and in light of the fact that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, how might we respond as Christians in such a time as this? Well, one, we need not be given over to fear or worry. It doesn't mean we should be foolish or unwise, but it does mean that we don't need to be afraid. All of these truths should empower us and enable us to conquer any kind of fear. see, this pandemic has revealed just how fearful people are when they have no security or confidence or hope in Christ. People fighting over toilet paper, stocking up items and not at all thinking about the needs of others. As followers of Christ, we mustn't be like that. Because our security resides in the sovereign God of the universe who tells us he loves us and is for us. It's precisely God's sovereignty that, that Jesus uses in order for us to not worry to not worry about tomorrow in Matthew 6, 25 to 33. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father Which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? O you of little faith! Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, "What we shall eat, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear?" For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. We need not be afraid nor worry. Not only that, we we ought to do what Jesus says here, to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. It's important that we have an idea of what's happening. We want to make sure that we're following regulations placed on us by the government. We want to be informed so that we can pray. But let's not be consumed with COVID-19, of which I have been guilty of. At points. This is a time to set our minds and our hearts on Christ and His kingdom. This is a time for you and I to redeem the time that God has given to us. Let us use this time wisely. And thirdly, instead of fear, let us be willing to sacrificially love if called upon. This might be God's providential time where as Christians we can display to the world a little bit of what Christ's sacrificial love is all about, by ourselves living sacrificial lives in the service of others. I want to end with the words of William Kelper, the English poet who experienced depression most of his life. Yet it was through his suffering that he penned some of the greatest hymns we have in our Christian heritage like there is a fountain filled with blood God had a purpose for his depression and he wrote a hymn called God moves in a mysterious way and I want to close off by by reading it listen to these beautiful words God moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unsearchable minds of never-failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings in blessings, in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter and he will make it plain in his own time, in his own way. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we can trust you in the midst of uncertain circumstances from our point of view but we know that you are sovereign you are in control we know that your purposes shall stand and we know that you are working for the good of your children and we know that there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus And so help us Lord to live in light of these truths we pray this in Christ's name